This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Guy, get out of the archives. Get out of the archives! We're live today! Yes, we again have to thank Guy Tortorisi for his fine work over this summer, filling in, uh, well, when we are uh, a bit AWOL. And I don't mind adding that when I turned in last week to, uh, to hear what was going down, I was quite amused to hear the program close with uh, what is our earliest show on the archives, currently number 27. We will, by the way, be filling in a lot of the uh, original programs in the near future. But I'd forgotten our little comedy bit that we did back in the early days about uh, supposed the lost book of the Bible. Supposed? Yeah, it turns out it was all, it was fake. But anyway, we've been talking about doing probably an all-comedy program from our archives, and we think that's probably a a pretty good idea, but we're not going to do that today. We've not done anything live for a spell. And things keep happening out there in the world, and, you know, we, we feel we need to comment upon them. So we're going to do a look back at the last uh, four or five weeks of what's been happening in the world and um, provide you with our slant on it. Before I do that, I would like to pass on a musing that I came upon that, that, that I think um, should be shared, which is, the next time you dislike your life, remember, it's all about perspective. I have a friend who reads two to three books a week, works out twice a day, has no financial worries, and has people who want to have sex with him all the time. And yet, he constantly complains about how much he hates prison. All right, the first thing we are feeling a need to uh, sound off about is the fact that uh, it appears that the American democracy dodged a bullet, which might have been fired by the Supreme Court right at the heart of our system of governance. We spoke with uh, Stephen Harper, I guess about a month or month or two ago, about this once legal fringe theory that had become a threat to democracy. We referred you, I believe, to the New Yorker article on June 12th by Andrew Morantz, which summarized the issue very well. And I don't mind saying, so did Stephen Harper, for our benefit. Well, since we did that, the decision has come down in the case of Moore versus Harper. Let me quote from The Week magazine. The Supreme Court this week rejected a fringe legal doctrine that threatened to shatter the system of checks and balances governing U.S. elections. In Moore versus Harper, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett sided with the court's three liberals to find that the North Carolina State Supreme Court acted within its authority in throwing out a heavily gerrymandered electoral map. The issue in this case, of course, was whether the Supreme Court could check the legislature of North Carolina. Noted the week in more, North Carolina Republicans invoked the independent state legislature theory, which argues that the elections clause of the Constitution gives states' legislatures sole control over federal elections. The theory's most extreme form holds that no other state body, not the courts, not the governor, not the election commission, can alter whatever voting rules the legislature chooses to set. Writing for the majority, Roberts rejected that argument, saying the Constitution, quote, 
does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review, end quote. Sounding off on this, the Washington Post said, phew, the independent state legislature theory is absurdly expansive interpretation of the elections clause, which grants state lawmakers the power to determine the times, places, and manners of elections, posed a serious threat to democracy. Writing in the Daily Beast, Andy Craig said had the court upheld the doctrine, it would have been a doomsday for fair elections. Recall that after the 2020 election, Trump supporters invoked the independent state legislature theory to urge Republican-controlled legislatures in states Joe Biden won to replace Biden's electors with Trump-backed ones. It didn't work, but with the court's blessing, the 2024 election could have been stolen. Noted Craig, instead, America's experiment in self-government lives another day. Which I think is a pretty good way to look at it, because let's just dial this back a second. By a 6-3 to three Supreme Court decision, this lunatic idea was tossed out. Which means that three of the justices thought this lunatic idea was just fine. This, we would note, includes Gorsuch, who would say is bad, and Thomas, who is possibly one of the worst people ever to sit on the Supreme Court, and Sam Alito, who's apparently trying to see what he can do to outdo Clarence Thomas. Mr. Malone has just given word to me that both Alito and Thomas are making some noise about retiring. All I can say to that is, sir, that's just too good to be true. Well, maybe Sam Alito wants to do a little more fishing. We should take a moment to reiterate a bit about... Uh, these boys wearing their black robes. It's, uh, it's attracted a lot of attention, uh, the fact that Ginny Thomas, Clarence's wife, was one of the leading cheerleaders in the effort to basically subvert the 2020 election. In spite of that fact, Clarence has gone on record as saying, no, no, he and his wife don't talk about that stuff too much. Uh, following which he went on to not recuse himself in, some, in a couple of cases that involved exactly this, the legal maneuvers to try and subvert the election. The Washington Post noted that on the heels of recent revelations about Clarence Thomas's decades of unreported largesse from Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow, ProPublica revealed last week that Justice Sam Alito also has a right-wing billionaire sugar daddy with interests before the Supreme Court. It has just now come out that back in 2008, Alito accepted an all-expenses-paid luxury fixing, fishing expedition to Alaska, where he stayed at a $1,000 a night fishing lodge. Yeah, that's that's some fishing lodge. thousand bucks a night? That's not an igloo. No. Probably not a tent, either. And, of course, while Sam was there, he was chewing down Kobe beef and king crab legs, which he, which he washed down with $1,000 a bottle wine which was, in this case, all paid for by billionaire conservative activist Robin Arkley. Alito flew to Alaska on the private jet of Paul Singer, another GOP mega-donor, whose business, it might be noted, later netted $2.4 billion when Alito and the Supreme Court sided with him in a financial dispute. Now, I believe on this program some time ago, we had uh, Greg Pallas come on to, to educate us about, uh, about the, the activity of Mr. Paul Singer, whom he called a vulture capitalist. 
We're not going to go over that ground today, but we do have to admire Sam Alito's attempt to excuse uh, this airplane ride gift by noting that if he hadn't flown on Singer's jet, his seat would have otherwise been vacant, which I guess is Justice Sam's way of trying to tell us, well, that really, really had no value at all. I'm very sorry that we were turned down by the distinguished legal writer, Michael Trackman, to, to talk about the current heading of the Supreme Court. He respectfully declined an appearance on this show to do just that. But suffice it to say, he is extremely concerned about the politicking that's now going on in the Supreme Court, the rather open one-sidedness which it's displaying. Jesse Wegman, writing in the New York Times, said, Ever since he arrived in the court 17 years ago, Sam Alito has been a bare-knuckled partisan soldier, not a neutral arbiter of the law. This is the same justice who mouthed, not true, during President Obama's State of the Union speech. The man who overturned Roe v. Wade with such sneering disdain for women and who reliably rules for the fossil fuels industry despite his family's own substantial holdings in natural gas. Despite? To which Wegman added, no wonder public trust in the court is in free fall. By the way, that Alaska trip was organized by Leonard Leo, who is, oddly enough, leader of the conservative Federalist Society, which has been working very hard with great success to get the people it wants on the Supreme Court. We've talked about the Federalist Society in the past, and we'll no doubt do again in the future. I think, though, that I should pull a little clip that I talked about many months ago, which was that Barry Sade, the secretive electronics manufacturing mogul, donated $1.65 billion, yeah, with a B, possibly the largest political contribution in U.S. history, to a nonprofit run by Leonard Leo, the prime architect of the successful campaign to install conservative justices in the judiciary across the nation. We reported that over the last couple of years, Sade, age 90, donated all his shares of a Chicago-based electronics equipment maker, Trip Light, to Leo's group, which then collected the 10-figure sum that a supposed Irish conglomerate paid to acquire Sade's company. By delivering the donation that way, they avoided about $400 million in taxes. The Federalist Society, a pipeline for conservative judicial picks, advised former President Trump on his three Supreme Court picks, which gave us Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch. And speaking of the former president, since we last spoke to you, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president to be charged with a federal crime, even as he campaigns for a second term in the White House. Trump pled not guilty to a 37-count indictment charging that he violated the Espionage Act, well, also obstructed justice, and also put national security at risk by taking hundreds of classified documents from the White House, hoarding them at his Florida and New Jersey estates, and conspiring to hide them from investigators. Now, Trump supporters did point out that that storing top-secret documents in the bathroom wasn't all that bad of an idea because you can lock the door of a bathroom. Well, you can lock it from the inside. True. But what if you run out of toilet paper in there? This indictment also uh, detailed how Trump insisted to his own lawyers that the documents were mine and cites an audio recording from his golf club in which Trump shows a visitor the Iran battle plan in which Trump says, as president, I could have declassified it, which is in contradiction of his defense that he had declassified the document. 
To which he added, now I can't. You know, this is still a secret. We don't know whether he added, hey, but you want to take a look at it? Meanwhile, astonishingly, across the nation, Republicans, members of a party that used to warrant some respect, are closing ranks behind Trump. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy called the indictment a grave injustice, while others have used even more incendiary rhetoric. Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona said, We've now reached a war phase. Carrie Lake, the lunatic that ran for Arizona governor, who's hailed as a rising GOP star, has said, Eye for an eye, saying that to get Trump, prosecutors are, quote, going to have to go through me and 75 million Americans just like me. And most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. On the other hand, the National Review, which year after year after year, I believe the National Review was founded by William F. Buckley, if I'm not mistaken, himself formerly of the CIA, and usually a reliable endorser of whatever the national security state wants to do. Anyway, the National Review, at least Jeffrey Blehar writing in it, referred to Trump's demented lawbreaking, noting that it simply boggles the mind with its recklessness and arrogance. Noted. Blehar, in the National Review, provides incredibly detailed evidence that includes recorded conversations and and striking photos of top-secret documents in a comically insecure storage at Mar-a-Lago, piled up in a bathroom, on a stage, and in one case, spilled across the floor. Trump even expressly directed a flunky to move boxes to hide them from investigators and his own attorneys, adding he left uh, Smith with no choice but to charge him with crimes. Mr. Whelan holds out great optimism that this will accelerate into finally getting around to charging him for his attempt to overthrow the U.S. government on January 6, 2021. I'm a little less optimistic, but I do have my fingers crossed. Speaking of Sam Alito and our our rather corrupt United States Supreme Court, as we just were, I'm tempted to quote from a a piece that appeared in ProPublica by Kavitha Sarana, entitled, When Choice is Gone. And although it's worthy of some extensive quotes, I, I, I just don't want to do that today, but I want to maybe pull a couple of nuggets out of it. The article notes that uh, a Dr. Barry Grimm, late last summer, called a fellow obstetrician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Tennessee to consult about a patient who was 10 weeks pregnant. The patient's embryo had become implanted in scar tissue from a recent cesarean section, and she was in serious danger. At any moment, the pregnancy could rip open her uterus. At Vanderburg, Dr. Mac Goldberg, who was trained in abortion care for life-threatening pregnancy complications, pulled up the patient's chart. He didn't like the look of them. The muscle separating her pregnancy from her bladder was as thin as paper tissue. Her placenta threatened to eventually invade her organs like a tumor. And even with the best medical care in the world, some patients bleed out in less than 10 minutes in the operating room. Goldberg had seen it happen. Patient Mayron Michelle Hollis stood to lose her bladder, her uterus, and her life. She was desperate to end the pregnancy. On the phone, the two doctors agreed that this was the best path forward, guided by recommendations from the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, an association of 5,000 experts on high-risk pregnancy. The longer they waited, the more complicated the procedure would become. Dr. Goldberg spent the next couple days trying to rally support from his colleagues for the procedure that would possibly save Hollis's life. To make a very long story in a long article 
much shorter, we would note that that help wound up being not forthcoming because of the legal climate in the country. Hollis's original Dr. Grimm had to break the news to her that the other doctors at Vanderbilt had backed out due to the current legal climate. She wound up having to carry this pregnancy to term, at which time when they did a cesarean section, they almost lost her on the operating room table, but she did make it through. Notes the article as the doctors cleaned up, there were the usual backpats and shared congratulations between a team that had united to make it through a life-saving surgery. But they could all recall similar cases where things didn't end as well. Said one doctor, I'm glad she's okay, but it's a tragedy that this happened. This is not a win. Another doctor felt that everyone in the room was traumatized, adding, this is going to drive people out of the medical profession. And I'm sure it will, and I think that's all I'm going to say on this for today. Well, what happened to the uh, baby? The baby came out alive, but because they did the surgery as early as they could, there were some complications, and she did wind up at least at one point in the pediatric intensive care unit, but I think she got through it. Anyway, lest you think that this is an argument uh, against abortion, as some might take this, uh, some might interpret this narrative, the thing to emphasize is that the patient was very lucky to have survived, given the condition that she had, and that by all accounts, the sensible thing to do to protect her life was to terminate the pregnancy. And this is certainly not the way you want to bring a child into the world. When they removed the baby during the cesarean, she was one pound, 15 ounces limp and unable to breathe on her own. They were not at all sure that she would survive. And of course, babies delivered under these circumstances often have a lifetime of medical problems. So I think it's fair to say that the correct thing to have been done in this case and would have been done prior to overturning Roe v. Wade would have been to act to save the patient's life. But, quote, Due to the current legal climate, unquote, that was not seen as an option. At least it wasn't an option they were willing to take. Anyway, you can bet we'll have more to say about that in future installments of this program. Since we're getting a little bit heavy, <laughs> well, a little, uh, Ms. Merlin, I think it's time we lighten things up with the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, we generally we generally extract uh, these items from the week magazine. It's it's good week for a bad week for a section. Not always, but and when you know, it, we've got a backlog to work with. So let us start off by noting that it was a good week for, and in this particular instance, this does not come from the good week bad week section. It was a good week for Belgian pranksters recently, who entered a two dollar and seventy cent supermarket wine into a prestigious French wine competition where it won a gold medal. Former top sommelier Eric Boschman and staffers from a Belgian consumer magazine and TV program sought the cheapest wine they could find. They stuck on a colorful new label and renamed it Le Chateau Colombier. The judges at the Gilbert A. Galliard competition deemed it exceptional and very interesting. They lauded its suave, edgy, and rich palate. Also, its clean, youthful aroma that promised a nice complexity. 
And as the legendary Danish comedian Victor Borga once said, but we cannot confirm for this particular bottle of wine, that it comes with a money-back guarantee. Drink a bottle of it, stick a pin through your ear. If there's any sensation at all, they'll give you back your $2.70. Not true in this case, but what a hoot. It was, on the other hand, a bad week more recently for, I guess you'd say, the legal system of the United States of America. Isn't that every week? Pretty much. But it was revealed that last week, a Florida man, we always love that, a Florida man, will face no criminal charges after firing 30 rounds from his AR-15 at the man who came to clean his pool. Reportedly, Bradley Hosovar, age 57, mistook Carl Polek, 33, for an intruder and unloaded his entire 30-round magazine at Polek, who luckily suffered only minor injuries from shattering glass. According to Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri, Josever's actions were, quote, lawful but awful. And Mr. Millen does point out that this does stress the need to have better gun training out there. Although we would certainly add that in this particular case, the fact that he was unable to hit the broadside of a barn apparently worked out for the best. And we'd have to add that it was an ugly week last week for diagnosing, however correct, after former Republican Representative Liz Cheney said the problem with current U.S. politics is that, quote, we're electing idiots, unquote. Cheney has suggested to voters that we should, quote, try electing serious people. Says the person who is about 90% in line with Donald Trump. Well, there's that, yeah. But she's not wrong. All right, Mr. Miller, let's do a second round, shall we? Sounds good. Speaking of gun safety, as we just were, it was a good week for what we'd have to call, I guess, gun safety enigmas a few weeks back. Because after President Biden addressed a gun safety summit in Connecticut, he concluded his remarks with the sign-off, God save the queen, man. Biden's age could not explain what he meant, and neither can we. Yes, we have to thank Ms. Merlin on that one for juxtaposing God Save the Queen as done by the Sex Pistols, who, to our knowledge, never enrolled in gun safety classes, or perhaps any classes at all. All right, a few weeks back, it was certainly a bad week for, we'd have to say, patience, with the news that an Asiana Airlines flight descending to land in South Korea's Daegu Airport had a passenger try to open the emergency door while the plane was still 650 feet above the runway. Here's the part we like best. The unnamed man explained to police that, quote, the flight was taking longer than it should have. He probably had to get a connecting flight. Well, the, the problem using this method to get down on the runway will probably ensure that it's hard to make that connection. And finally, it was an ugly week for the biological sciences, I would have to say, a few weeks back, when a University of Cincinnati adjunct professor admitted to giving a student's paper a zero, a zero, because it used the term biological women. 
Professor Melanie Rose Nipper, and that is apparently her real name, Melanie Rose Nipper, says she draws the line on free speech when students, quote, are participating in a systemic harm of some kind, which she says student Olivia Kolchak did with her, quote, outdated, unquote, reference. Now, I have to note that, that, I, that I do have degrees in biological science and medicine granted to me by the University of California System of Education. And I would argue that the term biological women is not, quote, outdated, unquote. It might be, uh, now it, it might be perceived as offensive to a rather small, very small, I hope, set of society. And we're going to have a lot more to say about that in our second half today. But you got it straight from us. The term biological woman remains valid. Okay? And before we go, we cannot resist tacking on the possibility that it was an ugly week a few weeks back for the English language. And note that the new language guidelines from Johns Hopkins University have redefined, quote, lesbian, unquote, as, quote, a non-man attracted to non-men, end quote. The, quote, updated definition, end quote, the guidelines say, avoids gendered language, end quote, includes non-binary people, unquote, who are attracted to women. Critics say the term erases women the same way, quote, birthing person, unquote, does. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Lots more coming up. Don't go away. We hope you'll do that if you're a man or a non-man, or for that matter, a woman or a non-woman. <laughs> 